We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. This week, we have a very special episode for you featuring not one, but two incredible guests. First up, we have the return of the talented Los Angeles-based writer and a senior vice president at The Blacklist, Kate Hagen, who you can find on social media with the handle That Hagen Girl. Having bonded last year over our affection for the career of the actor James Spader, whom we did not one, but two podcast episodes about, one here on Watch with Jen and one over on Screen Drafts with our friends Clay Keller and Ryan Marker. Kate joined me once again on the show a few months back for a rich, soulful, wide-ranging conversation with one of our favorite filmmakers, the wondrous Allison Anders. Later that night, we hatched an idea for our next podcast conversation, where we looked forward to inviting Allison's wildly gifted daughter, Tiffany Anders, to come talk to us and all of you about her stellar career and a trio of favorite obscure music documentaries as well. A Los Angeles native who was recently selected by Variety as one of the music supervisors to watch in 2022. In addition to her outstanding work in the field on acclaimed television shows such as Reservation Dogs, You're the Worst, Pen 15, The Chair, and Sorry for Your Loss, along with films such as To the Stars, Rust Creek, The Circle, and The End of the Tour, Tiffany is and or has also been a musician, journalist, radio DJ, plus co-founder and co-head curator of LA's Don't Knock the Rock Film Festival. And speaking of her background as a singer, songwriter, and musician, Tiffany's critically lauded debut album, Funny Cry Happy Gift, was produced by the legendary PJ Harvey as well. With so much talent and experience here, we are not worthy, but we're so very glad and honored to have you both here tonight. So how are you doing, ladies? Well, doing good. Happy to be here. 
Happy Tuesday, indeed. <laughs> Tiffany, I had forgotten about the Variety 10 Music Supervisors to watch. That's so cool. Congrats that on that. Was, cool. That was so amazing. And so uh, I didn't expect it. And it, you know, my I have a manager and he sent it to me and I was very, very excited. Very cool. Yes. No, it was so thrilling. I think when that happened, it was around the time that we actually talked to your mom. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Yes, it was it was really cool because we had just read the article and it was like Tiffany. So <laughs> very exciting. Yeah. And I want to congratulate you on all of your well-deserved success. I know how busy you are and want to thank you so much for doing this. I've been impressed by your work for some time. I think I first took notice of your remarkable contributions to heightening the emotional impact of scenes as a music supervisor on FXX's irreverent series you're the worst because mm. I kept finding myself wanting to shazam every single track like all the time so I guess to start things off I would love to know more about your background when you first got bit by the music bug as a girl and what started you on this path yeah so um you know I think my mom my mom had a lot to do with it uh she was a big music fan, you know, when I was growing up and you can see that in her work as well. Yes. But um, I just, you know, took a real liking to music when I was really, really small. And she kind of like bolstered that enthusiasm in me. So we kind of shared this enthusiasm for it. And, you know, she always kind of, you know, made sure that... <laughs> I was getting some sort of music education in school and <clears throat> playing records all the time. And so I had, you know, and I really just took to it. And it's funny because, you know, I see like my niece or, you know, we we're all like exposed. We've all been exposed to music. But, you know, when I think about what I liked when I was my niece's age, I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, I was really you know, like I liked X and stuff when I was like eight. Wow. So, uh, you know, it, it's just I just really and I remember the feeling that it gave me as a kid, you know, and I, I think uh, I think it just, you know, it's just always had this crazy impact on me. So, you know, I went on, um, I like got a guitar when I was 14. I saved my babysitting money to buy the guitar. I got the electric guitar. I was obsessed with uh, Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr. I was like, mm -hmm. I really wanted to be a guitarist like him. I feel like his music kind of was the breaking point for me is to go into like truly I always wanted to be a musician as a little kid but I think when when I hit that age and I heard Dinosaur Jr it was kind of like mind blowing life changing that kind of a thing for me so um I started to learn how to play guitar and I started my own my first band when I moved to Seattle when I was 19. I had some great people in the band, but I was still really just kind of learning how to do learning how to play really and and writing songs and stuff like that. So um 
then I decided to move to New York and uh, mm-hmm. I started playing acoustic guitar and singing and writing. And um, and it was funny because by this point, you know, I was such a big fan of Jay Maskus to the point that, you know, my mom wrote a scene for him in Gas Food Lodging just so that I could oh. meet him. Yeah, you guys share that scene, don't you? You're the one. Yeah, we do. Right. And and pretty much, she said. I mean, she was the first to see Dinosaur Junior, oh. and then she brought home the record. And the record, I just couldn't. I couldn't live without the record. So, and that was when I was 14. And then, you know, this is pre-internet. So, she had. I was so obsessed, and they hadn't toured or played LA you know, into, in those two years. Um, and she, you know, this was kind of her first movie. I mean, she made border radio, but this was like yeah. her first and we were, you know, pretty broke at the, in between those times. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was a hard go of it because she wasn't in school anymore. And like, like we didn't have a phone. We didn't have, you know, there was certain things like that. But I remember when we did get a phone and she had started the script for Gas Food Lodging, which, you know, in the film world, you're kind of like, you never know if things are really going to happen. And I kind of was like, is this really going to happen? Is she really going to make this movie? Like, is this? So one day she just said, um, let's call information. We had a phone at this point. Um, (laughs) Let's call information in Massachusetts where Jay lives and see if they have any mascuses, you know, let's check out. So we got connected and it was his dad's house where he lived. He was living with his parents. Wow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, um, and his dad was a total character, hilarious. And, you know, my mom's calling saying, I want to put Dinosaur Jr., the band, in the movie. And at this point, Lou had left the band. Jay didn't really have a band together. And, um, and so. <laughs> So he finally, after, you know, my mom talking to his dad for a really long time, and it's literally like we're both leaning. She's holding the phone like that so that I hear everything that's, you know, it was like that. And he gets on the phone and I'm about to pass out, Jay. You know, he finally oh. Jay on the phone and Jay's like, uh, well, you know, I don't really have a BAM right now. And he said, I would rather act anyways. Oh, wow. Which was hilarious, given his whole slow <laughs> kind of talk thing. So my mom was like, hmm, I guess this is an opportunity to write a scene for Tiffany and, and Jay to act in. So she did that on my behalf. And uh, and then I convinced her to let him do the score for the movie because yeah. you know, I thought he would be the perfect person for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so Jay was like a big part of my musical. After that, Jay and I became friends. We're still friends. Um, and he kind of, you know, just kind of guided me through stuff that I wanted to do musically a little bit, you know, like he was always there to help me with 
you know, buying guitars and whatever I was interested in. And he plays drums on the record that, um, that PJ Harvey produced the funny cry, happy gift. Wow. Um, so he bought me an acoustic guitar when I, uh, around the age of 19. And I just loved, I just really loved this guitar. So, (laughs) so, um, I ended up playing acoustic, when I got to New York and then I started, that's when I like was, I was four tracking, demoing stuff a lot on my own. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, yeah, I, the PJ Harvey thing was crazy too. It was also kind of a mom connection because I guess Polly at some point she wanted to act or her, she was interested in acting. Oh. And she had met my mom and my mom met her and just thought Tiffany would get along with her famously. Mm. They would love each other. And, um, and so she sent, i made an EP before she sent Polly and my EP mm-hmm. and she liked the EP. And then I was living in New York. My mom just happened to be in New York and um, Polly was living in New York for like the summer and, uh, wow. And we had dinner and that was kind of the end of that. <laughs> and, uh, I was like, that's cool. We, I had dinner with, you know, PJ Harvey. That's, yeah. that's pretty amazing. And then I was walking down the streets um, on the Lower East Side, I'll never forget it. And I'm walking down the street and she's walking straight towards me. Oh. And on my Walkman, this is really, we're really getting the the, the date of this. <laughs> <laughs> on my Walkman, um, I was listening back to my four track. I mixed down my four track stuff. So I'd taken a walk around my neighborhood, just listening to how I had, you yeah. know, what I had done. And I see her walking towards me and I'm like, hi. And, <laughs> and then I gave her, um, I just popped it out of my Walkman and I said, Hey, here's some songs I just did. And then she contacted my mom and said, I really, really love these songs. You know, can, is she playing anytime soon? And that summer, I think I had a lot of shows booked. And so she came shows and then she kind of offered, I asked, but she kind of also offered to produce the record, which was amazing. And she's also, you know, it's, the the greatest thing that I've gotten from those from Jay and Polly, I mean, besides just them being incredible like mentors to me yeah. and teaching me so much, uh, is that they're they're really like solid <laughs> friends of mine now. That's you know? so good. And, and that's kind of been the I don't know, kind of the um greatest thing that I got out of all that whole journey, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And then when I, when I was in New York, I was kind of getting tired of the way that I was living, um, you know, which meant living with a gazillion roommates and not having (laughs) 
being broke and working my ass off. Mm-hmm. As, you know, I had a lot of jobs and um, I just felt like I wasn't kind of getting anywhere with, with writing, with my songwriting. Mm-hmm. So I decided to move back to LA and the plan was, oh, I should look into maybe music supervising. And I kind of thought that if I did music supervising, I could still do my music, which. Okay. Yeah. Kind of didn't happen, but, but that was kind of the thought because I was lucky enough to know that it was a job that people had, you know, and, and, um, you know, most music lovers, I don't know that they know that it's something that you can do now. Mm -hmm. I can get into the reasons why most music lovers might not like the job, but, (laughs) but uh, I was going to ask Tiffany, I think for a lot of people, like the music supervisor job sounds really cool, but they don't really know like what it specifically entails. And like, I think listeners of the show in particular would love like a lot of the nitty gritty of like what the day to day looks like for you. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, I I remember my mom telling me when I first brought up the idea that I wanted to do it, her going, it's not what you think it is. It's a lot of negotiating. It's a lot of music business. It's that stuff. You don't like that stuff type of a thing. (laughs) And I was a little intimidated by it, but not really because I was kind of like, well, I mean, I, I guess I could learn that. I guess I could figure that out. And so I just, you know, I went, I interned for a couple of her music supervisors that she had had and just started kind of learning how it works. Now, the things that I didn't know was how complicated the music world is. Okay. And the thing about that, that was really kind of alarming to me was that coming from being a musician and not knowing how complicated it was, I knew that I had a lot of friends that were musicians and didn't know how complicated it was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, it really, that kind of really freaked me out once I started unraveling what was, you know, what, how it worked with licensing and, it is really complicated and there is a lot of like nitty gritty, like stuff that you have to deal with. That's annoying that you don't understand that isn't for the artist's best interests. And then you learn that the artists have no say. Oh, wow. Because they don't own their work. And, um, and, you know, I think coming from the world of a musician, even if even an indie musician like I was, it was like so exciting to think of the record labels that you wanted to be on or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or exciting to think of like, you know, oh my, even in the nineties when your favorite bands were getting signed to like Geffen or, you know, Warner Brothers, it was like, oh my God, they're going to be huge now. They've made it, you know, like I, Nirvana was the first. And then it was like, and that was like the shocker. I remember being like, oh my God, Nirvana signed to Geffen. And then Sonic Youth signed to Geffen. And then, mm-hmm. 
you know, Dinosaur Jr. signed to Warner Brothers and it meant that everything was just a level up and they were going to be, you know, living their dreams and like doing this for real and all that kind of stuff without realizing that actually once you're at that level, you, you, you're joining into something that's so much more (laughs) complicated and really not artist friendly, really, you know, just, I mean, even just in terms of of the catalogs that they have, it's like, it's too many to be that focused on, on one Mm -hmm. artist. I mean, they, they put a lot behind Nirvana, I'm sure, but like, is it good for something for somebody like Sonic Youth? I don't know. You know, like, I don't know that was the best move for Sonic Youth, you know, and, and they have ultimate control. And that's the thing that um, I think that was a real, eye-opener for me when I started music supervising is that I started to see, I mean, we all kind of knew that major labels was like, you know, selling out or whatever, but I don't think I realized the magnitude of what it meant once you crossed over into that kind of a world. And I had heard of my mother's struggles, clearing songs. Sure. And, and, when I was put out my record, she'd said, um, you know, don't sign a publishing deal. And oh and wow, it was because she had had so many problems with publishers. And, um, and I still didn't understand what that meant. I still didn't get it. I mean, I was 25, yeah. but I was like, I, I don't understand. Like what, what do publishers do? And what, it, you know, what is, what do you mean they stop you from using songs in your indie movies? Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I think that can be a, a real deterrent for somebody that's a music fan to see kind of, um, you know, you might have a great idea about a song and then you research it and you come to find out like it's owned by Warner Chapel and, you know, the guy signed the deal in the seventies and his estate sees none of the money because he took an mm. advance and, and you can't use the song because Warner Chapel wants $40,000 for it or, you know, just, just these, this, the magnitude of all this stuff, the multitude of all the stuff that you have to get through um, is pretty, pretty um, intense, you know, like it's, it gets, it's, it's a really complicated business. And I don't know why it, I almost, you know, I was discussing, I was in Memphis, I was on a panel and with other um, music supervisors, and we were chatting about like um, publishing, you know, publishing is always a thing. And especially for the shows that they were working on, because if you get into hip hop or any of that, it's, they start to piecemeal, like, like writers start to have 
you know, 6.5% for this person and 3% and 4.5% is with this publisher. And, you know, so that the Mm. music business made it so complicated that it almost seems like it's made this complicated just to rip people off, you know, like, and, um, and I think it probably did. I mean, if you think here we are in Memphis talking about this, and I think, you know, here we, there's blues musicians that were completely ripped off yeah. <laughs> and you have Elvis ushered in and like, you know, this is, this is the birthplace of rock and roll. And, and it did come, I mean, that those deals were even worse, you know, like mm-hmm. incredibly horrible deals. So, um, and it, you know, it, it, it still feels complicated to this day. And I think, I don't know how, who invented it, but, you know, one of the music supervisors was saying, no, it's like the mob. It's like the mob started this business. Like, it's just just like ridiculous, you know? (laughs) So, so those are the types of things that you have to deal with. Um, You know, the the creative side, I, I don't mind getting into that because I kind of like researching and being an advocate for artists and, you know, kind of bringing up these points and like, you know, getting together with the other music supervisors. We all felt this way. You know, we all yeah shit talk, you know, <laughs> whatever and be like, ah, you know, but. um we all like to be advocates for musicians and I think it just brings us together and, and inches us all closer to trying to get, um, you know, get to a better place about how musicians being an advocate for musicians, basically, I think, I think there needs to be more of that. And I think that um, music supervisors, get this weird kind of window into it because we're not um we're not really in the music business we're just kind of like peering at it and okay you know having to deal with things that the music business conduct how they conduct themselves but really we're 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 working for you know, the producers and, and mm-hmm. the shows and stuff. And, you know, rightfully so the shows should pay a proper fee on certain songs. You know, the, we don't want musicians to be ripped off that way, but you're kind of like an in-between person between these two businesses. And you got to kind of have that head on your shoulder. And that's when things can get, you know, it's kind of like ugh, the, you know, the non-creative part of the job though I like I like that part too (laughs) interesting yeah it kind of reminds me of you know starting out you said you loved records and stuff growing up and so that old thing of digging through crates at a record store and discovering things like there's that aspect to it but it sounds like it goes much deeper to that so you're sleuthing out good music and making these discoveries, but then trying to figure out how to make sure that you're helping the artist, but also um, figuring out what's best for, um, you know, whatever project you're working on. So it kind of goes deeper 
it's not going through the crates like you used to, but it's it's to that sleuth kind of um, personality. Sounds like that's exactly exactly what it is. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Do you have certain rules for selecting music for projects or scenes or something you keep in mind when you're trying to? I mean, I I have. Um... You know, the, each show has its own kind of taste or vibe. So, I mean, on Reservation Dogs, Sterling Harjo, who created the show, he just he he just said, you know, he sent me a playlist. Oh, cool! And um, and it was all this cool stuff that I loved, and uh, and then he basically said, you know, I, I trust you. You can go ahead and and send the editors stuff. Cause you're working with the editors a lot. Oh. And, um, and you know, he just said, basically it's gotta be anything that sounds DIY. It doesn't have to be like mm. native American. It doesn't have to be, you know, he didn't want on the nose. He wanted to use native sure. artists, but he didn't want it to be, you know, powwow music through the whole you know yeah, like that too was obvious. the vibe it, the vibe was to show um you know kids and the DIY kind of culture of Tulsa Oklahoma and like you know that involves country music that involves you know all sorts of things that set now he that community listens to so um so, you know, I'll gather things after the first season. I did get a lot of people hitting me up on Instagram and on in finding my email address and sending me native artists, sending me stuff. And I've kept all of that for nice. season two. Um, and that's been great. But, you know, also if I come across anything that I think is now the vibe of the show, I I save it and I keep I keep it for the editors now, I always have to, the other part of music supervising is that you always have to keep the budget in mind. So, sure. you know, um, we've got a few big songs, you know, in this season. So then you got to swap out things. It's like a puzzle when it comes to that. <laughs> You're like constantly moving numbers around and trying to find things that, um, you know, won't blow the budget, the littler things that'll that'll stick out. And that, I love that. I mean, I love finding things that are obscure and not heard that often to, to throw in with a few recognizable songs elsewhere. Tiffany, you've got like this incredibly, incredibly deep knowledge base of music and you're always pulling stuff literally out of the crates that nobody else is. How do you sort of like approach that discovery and research process on your own? Like, are you go are you like the rest of us going to the like Spotify recommended tracks and being like, what's cool <laughs> here? I don't know. I just I I feel like people kind of constantly ask that question of like, I need to find new music. Like, how do you find new music? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think just like um, you know, now I get sent music from record labels a lot. Um but I think that just um, I still feel like the record store is the best way to search for music. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's mm -hmm. kind of the way that I started doing it. And 
and that I continue to do it, you know, like, um, and you, it's, I always use every tool that I have. I mean, I've, I'll go through the algorithm on Spotify and go like, Oh, if you fans also like, I'll do that. You know, um, sometimes I think they're, you know, completely wrong and off, (laughs) but sometimes I'm surprised by what I find. Um, I have, I think I have many different sources. Record store is always number one. Um, I have, people sending me stuff, which is great. Um, I do use Spotify. I use all these kind of weird um, apps too. Like I like this app called radio. I'm giving away my secrets. Uh, (laughs) It's like, I actually learned about it when I was in London one time, this, I went out to dinner and uh, the, the music was so amazing that was playing in the restaurant that I asked, I said, um, what is this? Like, is yeah. like, it was all this amazing, like 60s, 70s, like world music, but like pop. And I was like, what is this? And he said, oh, it's this app called radio. So the app the app is basically record collectors that upload their tracks up wow so if you want to go really deep this is the deep. yeah these are the deep tracks <laughs> like how do you spell that app it's r-a-d-i-o-o-o gotcha and i think it's french like i think it started in france okay um but uh you can press on any part of the map of the world and they have the decades down below. And so you could be like wow. 1960s Egypt, you know, like, or um, you can't get, you can't get too regional. Like, you know, if you hit the United States, it's the United States. You're not sure. going to Memphis, yeah. but, um, but uh, you know, it has, 60s Japanese music or Indonesian psych bands from 1972 or I mean you have to go on the decades but it's a really cool cool app that sounds and, like it and I'm sharing it because you know somebody shared it with me and everybody should get on there because it, <laughs> it's my grandma loves it my grandma's Aww. like I'm listening to radio <laughs> so nice. fun. it takes you all you can hit and then you can do a taxi which where it just goes by itself all over the place and you can the decade. And usually the music is fantastic because it's all stuff that people have, that record collectors, record nuances uploaded. And, and I used it recently. I had to do some, some DJ stuff and I used it recently. I had to be very global. So I used it to find new you know, new uh, Syrian artists, you know, stuff like that, or Ukrainian or, you know, anything um, they have, they have amazing stuff on there. So I highly recommend that. So rad. Yeah. That's nice. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? I also, you know, doing this conference that I just did in, in Memphis, I was shocked by how many musicians I met, met there. And like, so us music supervisors use this thing called disco or most of us do that um, 
that, you know, we, if we, it's like a, it's a server for music. And so record labels now use it too. So you, when they send you a record, it just can automatically go into your server. So, um, oh, cool. Yeah. So a lot of these artists, I was like, let me see if I already have this, you know, like checking my disco, putting it in there to see if, if somebody had already sent it to me. Mm-hmm. Nobody had sent me these artists from Memphis that I was, you know, that I came to know. And I, I think, you know, just being out in the music world and going to places like that, I was like, I met this kid. I went, I forced them to take me to some records. I was like, okay, we have an hour in between things. They took me to amazing places, but I was like, I have to do some records And we get there and the kid who's selling the tickets knows the guy that took me there and um, who was hosting the whole weekend, music supervisor weekend. And he goes, yeah, we just went to Stax. And he shows me this tattoo on his arm. And he's like, I've got a Stax tattoo. My grandfather designed the logo. And I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy who brought me there says he's in a really good band his band's called black hippie you got to check him out so I'm looking in my disco to see if anybody had sent it to me and no and so I hit him up on Instagram and I'm like send me your music because yeah I want to listen to it and maybe I'll have use for it somewhere and you know he he sent me that stuff through disco right away and Mm -hmm. and I think just you know getting out there and trying to keep seeing bands and I mean it when you go to places that are not LA and I don't know get around that was my question I was going to ask you how often you did travel and try to hit little clubs or um, ask people who are in bands I mean LA a lot of people are from other places so they might know bands back home or is it a lot of um, human connections like that of, of this in, inspired me or I was part of this band and now they're in a different band? Is it a little bit of that, like word of mouth? Yeah, I feel like that and record shopping are, those were the ways that it used to be done. And I gotcha. feel like those are the best ways to get it done because you're, once you're in a music scene, I mean, that's how I feel like I learned everything about music was being a part of just hanging out with musicians all the Mm -hmm. time. So we were all turning each other on different things. And when I lived in New York, um, all my friends were musicians and all of us were really like into obscure stuff, you know? So, and it would just be one, we go down one rabbit hole down the other. And there was a record store again, other music where a lot of the bands, my friends works and they would tell you like, Oh, you've got to hear this John Fahey record. Or if you like that, you got to listen to this. You got to do, you know, so those to me are still the best ways of discovering music. And I tell you, you can still go into Amoeba and somebody can still recommend something to you that's going to change your life. So I'm I'm a big, I think that every, that's how, I, if you're just kind of living that, you're going to consume more music and it's going to be 
rich and not just, you know, mm-hmm. but not I use digital. Very- yeah. yeah. You need that pe- person to person. Yeah. Yes. Um, speaking of things flying under the radar, should we talk about these wonderful docs you had us watch on some very fascinating musicians? Yes. yes. Yeah. So did you guys like them? We really <laughs> yeah, did. I learned so much. Like I had never seen any of these. I knew the name Scott Walker. Um, I should probably announce the ones that you uh, recommended. It's chronologically the ones Tiffany recommended to us were Scott Walker, 30 Century Man from 2006, 2013's Bayou Maharaja, The Tragic Genius of James Booker, and Syl Johnson, Any Way the Wind Blows, which was made two years later. They were so fascinating, Tiffany. I want to thank you because especially I am somebody I love piano. So uh, most of all, because I played it like all the way through college. And so the the one on James Booker in particular, I mean, I liked them all, but that was really extraordinary. So thank you. Pretty incredible. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, when we were doing Don't Knock the Rock, we got to see all these amazing documentaries and bring out these mega fan filmmakers. And, um, and it, you know, watching them again, it made me a little sad because I really wanted us to do the festival again, you know, and and um, it it just, you know, it was just such a great time and it was a wonderful thing to support these filmmakers. And I mean, with the James Booker one, I posted on Instagram after watching it and the filmmaker, you know, wrote back and then. I, I realized like it's on Amazon, which is amazing. You know, when yeah. she came out, she had spent three and a half years making it. Wow. Oh my God. And then I realized like, while I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, he sings like, I saw her standing there by the Beatles. Like how did you, from a music supervisor mm-hmm. standpoint, I was like, how did she clear all this music? Cause she- <laughs> Booker actually didn't write that much music. Like he was more of a player. So I, you know, I said to her on Instagram, I said, "Uh, I want to know how you cleared all that music. She said, yeah, it took me another three years to clear all the music. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine. No joke. Music clearance is no joke. Um, So yeah, I mean, and bless her because it's such an amazing movie about such an under the radar crazy character that just takes you on this amazing journey of his incredible life. Um, yeah, I, I loved um, Harry Connick Jr. breaking down like the magic of how he yeah. played one hand doing this and what made it so singular and the other hand doing this and how some of it was coming from like classical and all these different styles that he put together. It was just mesmerizing. Yeah. Yeah. I loved Harry Connick Jr. was a total surprise. And I remember that when we screened it, like when I first (laughs) first saw it before we screened it, but I remember thinking, what's he doing in this movie? (laughs) There's this whole thing with his dad and, um, and, you know, uh, him having him being really inspired by James Booker as a kid. I just, I thought that was so sweet. Yeah. And um, 
And yeah, I guess, I mean, what I was uh, taking in as I watched all three of these musicians was kind of like, you know, um, there are little bursts of success and then the not success and, uh, and how each of them dealt with it. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought that was really interesting. I didn't do that. I didn't pick that on purpose, although I didn't pick them for those reasons on purpose, but I, I thought it was interesting that they were all these men that had these similar stories um, and how each one kind of dealt with it in different ways, you know? Um, Yeah. Like Scott Walker and the Walker brothers starting out with um, sun ain't going to shine anymore is the the song I first, you know, attributed to him and then his solo career and also how he walked away. I mean, these were really interesting, uh, arcs that these uh people went on Sol Johnson with the fish restaurants and being the most <laughs> sampled artist I love that the house that Wu-Tang built um yeah. he was a character yeah. just the he was yes he was a total character Charmer yeah the ultimate character yeah. yes <laughs> I yeah. was like where is that narrative movie like what an incredible oh, part for an actor so to be like can you imagine like Coleman Domingo in that role or wow. something like God. I just love that like all of these docs to sort of play with that idea of like oh the Scott Walker thing of like all of these musicians were playing in the future and the present hadn't sort of caught up to their aesthetic and everything they were doing and now with a little bit Good of hindsight point. we can be like oh they were actually just ahead of the big one. Like Scott Walker, you're like, oh, he's inventing goth music. That's yeah. what's happening. Like, yeah, that's a really good point, Kate. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Well, you know, I when I was watching the Scott Walker documentary, I'm a huge fan of his. So it's, I think I've seen that documentary like five times. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but. Uh, he he says at the end, I think Stephen Kajak, the director, asks him, you know, what do you think? Do you think that Scott Four, that record that, you know, didn't do as well as he thought it would do? And it was yeah. most his songs that he had written. Um, do you think that like took you? off course or like, you know, mm-hmm. would you have continued? And he basically says, you know, well, I lost 20 years. I would have gotten here a lot faster. I'm, and he says, I'm not blaming anybody, but you know, like I, I did it myself by, you know, kind of doubting himself after that. And I kind of thought like, I was like, I don't know. I don't know that he would the music that he does in the nineties, the two thousands is so avant-garde. And so like, like many people were saying who were interviewed in the movie, like you don't even know how to classify it. And that's the great thing about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I kind of feel like, no, I, I don't think that's true. I think I think this, you have to go through this process um, to arrive where he did, you know? And I think if his 
Scott Four would have been accepted, you know, maybe he would have gone on doing like melodrama, like like that orchestrated kind of melodramatic music, pop music, you know, and not to mention, you know, technological changes that happened, you know, that happened 20 years on that became such a big part of his music. Um, You know, he's not, he's not a Brian Eno He's mm-hmm. he, even weirder than Brian Eno, you know, <laughs> yeah. Brian Eno was able to kind of create this wobbly music that was, that was sonically pleasing and, and the depth of Scott Walker is something so much more dissonant and, and, you know, he really kind of is like, um, He's almost more of a of a writer to me that does sound, yeah, sound, sound arts or sound. Uh, I don't like the word sound art, but he does soundscapes. Mm-hmm. You know, to it's it's like he would have been an amazing novelist or film director or you know, but he's creating it in this space that's that brings sound in and. Um, I think, you know, his later stuff. And I think he even did that early on because everything is like, yeah, on a Scott Walker record, you're like, like he had, I was listening to it the other day and I can't remember which song it was, but he's singing about the war being over. And oh, he goes to World War II. I mean, he sings about World War II so much. And like, I'm going through it in my mind, like I'm there, like I'm, I'm <laughs> seeing everything, you know, like a movie. So he has something about him that's very, um, you know, he's got more of a, of a writer thing in him yeah. that is very interestingly put to music, I think. An evocative mood that he's kind of establishing. Yeah. And I love all of the uh, ways that he influenced other artists. I thought one of the most memorable uh, anecdotes was from David Bowie, where he was talking about he dated the girl who had dated Scott. (laughs) and was kind of annoyed because the records were still there. But then he realized he really liked them. And I just thought it was a funny uh, piece of happenstance. Yes. It's so good. It's I so- definitely tried to Google that. I was like, who was that woman? Like, <laughs> I know. How cool was she? Man, David Bowie and Scott, Scott Walker. Walker. Yeah. I learned a really interesting piece of Scott Byer, that Scott Walker bio info, which is that he's from Am- Hamilton, Ohio, which is just outside of Cincinnati, where I am from. And I Oh my thinking, gosh. No yeah. I was like, what conditions transpired in Hamilton, Ohio to create this particular boy? <laughs> went off to England and made these incredible pop records that then turned into these like incredible experimental records, but was really fascinated to know that. Um, Still unsung. I was glad towards the end of his life, he got some kudos like doing the excellent score to Vox Lux, but still, I feel like wildly unappreciated, um, just like all of the subjects of these docs. It's like, yeah, get with the program, guys. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. Well, I think that RZA in, in the Syl Johnson documentary, you know, 
it's hard for me not to feel, you know, bad for people that get underrecognized. I mean, I'm always True. like, you know, but, <laughs> but I thought that Risa brought up a really good point with, with the Al Green, Syl Johnson type of thing that had, that was, it wasn't a feud. It was just, you know, he, st- he, he came along and stole the thunder, but you know, um, Rizza said something like, there's like, you get one Al Green and then there's 2000 people that didn't make it or like that. And he's like, and it's not, it's just a character thing. It's not even really, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with anything really, you know? And, and as much as I love those women saying at Royal Studios who were a part of High Records saying, you know, um, I guess they were Willie Mitchell's daughters who ran that Royal Studios, which I just visited, which was amazing. You know, that they put all this money into Al Green. And and I was like, but they're different. Syl Johnson and Al Green are different. They really are. Yeah. yeah. And I was but like, I, they're not. I yeah. mean, you can say that. And I'm sure it helped. And you want, you want Syl to get the recognition, but you know, um, I think it's just, you know, uh, people's appetite, you know, for what, for how much they can consume of something and how much they want to consume of something. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I think, I think that Riza had a really good point when he said that, like, it's just, who knows, who knows why these things happen, you know? Yeah. He was totally new to me, just like uh, James Booker was. I'd, I'd heard of Scott Walker, but um, those extraordinary songs, like, is it because I'm black and different strokes? And I mean, I, I immediately went and was looking them up and playing a bunch on, on Spotify and other places. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. So great. Unbelievable music. Very I feel much. like these are all the kind of platonic ideal music docs. Like, listen, I love things like The Last Waltz and The Decline of yeah. Western Civilization, but it's also really nice to enshrine people that, like, didn't get their due in their time. And, like, the doc is such a nice way to, like, bring their music to a much bigger audience. I'm glad. I feel like we've been having a good couple of years lately for music docs, too. It's we been really kind have. of ridiculous. Like, Yeah. 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 What do you look for in a documentary? Because um, you were doing the Don't Knock the Rock Fest. Like, what did you, how did you program that? And what did you look for? What made them successful for you? I think, uh, I think with my mom and I, um, these types of documentaries about outsider or, or musicians that didn't get their full recognition were always things that we really loved. We wanted um, audiences to be exposed to music that they didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a good story is always amazing. I wanted, I went, one of my thoughts was like, oh, we should watch the Dead Moon documentary, which we screened at Don't Knock the Rock, and I can't find it streaming anywhere. Oh. But they were like a very DIY punk band, and I mean, they pressed their own records. They built their own house. I mean, <laughs> crazy. I mean, their story is just so intense. And it, and that's kind of the rock and roll spirit, you know? So I think that, you know, um, 
I don't think we would show the Taylor Swift documentary at our festival. It was supposed, you know, it's for, it's for these very special musicians and to mm-hmm. show, you know, what their journey and what's, what it's like to, you know, have to work like Syl Johnson did. I mean, I thought it was amazing that he continued to play shows and tour to be able to afford to put his kids in private school. Yeah. And also to go, oh, I can't do this anymore. Disco came along. I'm going to invest my money in fish restaurants. (laughs) I love a good career pivot and how they have to think outside the box because it's so true to life. Like all the rest of us, they say you change jobs like an average of seven times the adult is going to do that. And you, you don't really think about it with musicians or actors having to suddenly take on new skill sets. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And, and I think, um, and then his whole financial resurgence with the Sam pretty amazing, but, um, I think it's probably more common that musicians have to do this and especially musicians from that time period because they didn't own a lot of the stuff and, you know, um, a lot of people were making, making money off of them when they, you know, I think musicians, and I think it's probably come around to this more nowadays too. It's like, I think in their mind, it's like, I've got to play shows, shows to make money, you know, like they don't think about what they've created or making money off of that. Or like, you know, it's, it's constant touring is how they generate most of their money. And, um, that's more common now, obviously with streaming, but back then, I mean, you should be able to make a pretty damn good living off of record sales, you know? So, So, um, I think, uh, I think it's just, you know, again, I'm coming back to how what I've learned from from, you know, being a music supervisor in in my licensing world, but also being friends with so many musicians is like it's it's a tough life. You know, it's it's not easy. There's no job security. You can't tour forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, Unless you're the Rolling Stones and you're, <laughs> who knows why? They yeah. Keep but um, but you know, I think I think it's physically hard, and um, and I think uh, yeah, it's just it's not set up very well for musicians. It's not like I don't think they have. I I, I there is like the the musicians union, but I don't know anybody, any musician that was a part of the musicians union. And I don't know what they have to offer, but, you know, I think, I think it's very like, like a freelancer or something, you know, like, I think it's, there's not a lot of security there when you decide to do that. Yeah. That's scary. I know, um, speaking of gas food lodging and some of your mom's movies, I remember reading that for, I think it was Magic, the Olivia Newton-John, she had to get a sound alike in order to uh, get that in the movie. Um, Do you do that 
often when in your world uh, or tricks of the trade like that <laughs> in order to bring in some of these songs? I do. <laughs> I yeah. do. Um, yeah. Uh, it's funny. I mean, some hopefully are not recognizable that I've done before yeah. in the past. Um, and some, you know, I think are, uh, are pleasant surprises, you know, and I just had to do it recently and mm -hmm. I, um, and for the first time in my life, I went to an actual music house and I was like, we oh, need wow. to sound like this. Yeah. And I had them record a master and they hired a singer and did the whole thing. And I was shocked at how good it came out because it's not something that I creatively would want, want to do, you know, like True. I don't want to do that. Um, but I, it is a way to um, to save some money because the way that it the way that licensing works is that you know you have to clear the master recording they call it the master mm -hmm. recording of the song which a record label owns and yep. then you have to clear the publishing which is the written composition so if you're you know if you're paying $25,000 for um, the publishing of a song and you can get a master recorded for $5,000, then you're bringing the cost way down. And so sometimes that's needed. It's needed sometimes to, <laughs> to, yeah. to, um, to, you know, keep things in budget. Um then there's really, really interesting covers that I've come across, like Britta Phillips, um, who was who's in Dean and Britta and was in that band Luna. She did this amazing cover of Drive by the Cars. Ooh. And I I I've pitched that a few times because, you know, it won't be as expensive as using the cars. And she does an incredible job at doing That's this cool it's beautiful adding to my spotify immediately yeah. after this yeah. conversation. It's so good it's so good it's it's like totally moving and in a way that the cars is you know she just goes a, a level deeper with the emotion mm -hmm. i feel like it's really good um and then you know artists will re-record their own songs true to um, avoid you going to the record label. So they'll be like, we'll give you a deal on our re-recorded version of it if you don't go to Sony and use their version that they have. Because mm -hmm. a lot of these bands got in these weird deals. And so that happens a lot where bands have re-recorded their music and they want you to use their new master and not use... Um, not use a master that the original master, which is kind of crazy. That was the yeah. whole Taylor Swift dispute, right? Was about like who owned her masters. Am I portraying that correctly? And like so. the re-record of the masters that she did. Oh yeah. 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 That's exactly it. That was exactly it. Yeah. If, if Taylor Swift's got to re-record her <laughs> masters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's saying something about the industry right there. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Are you still recording and making music of your own? I know you mentioned you were hoping to do that when you went into music supervising, but of course, you know, you're so busy with, uh, with that job. Yeah. I mean, I play around, but I haven't written anything in a long time and writing really, you know, you gotta be in the zone for, or at least I do Yeah, writing. And, um, you know, I got a I got a drum kit. I have a whole jam room in the garage and I started playing drums and that's like easy. I mean, it's not easy, but at all, I'm not, good at <laughs> not good at drums, but, but in terms of my um, mental focus or whatever, it's, it's just fun because I can yeah. learn songs and I play them and like on the drums and, um, I've done that a little bit with guitar, but I find myself when I pick up the guitar, I want to do, I just gravitate towards what I normally do on the guitar. So, so, and then I start putting things together and then I'm kind of in a, in a writing mindset, but that takes so much, you know, I really need the time to do that. So I haven't written anything. I do play guitar and i play drums and I do stuff like that, but I haven't written a song in a long time, which is a bummer. Mm. (laughs) I'm sure I will soon again. Yeah. This job is fun. So I'm not in any, any you're keeping all those muscles, very active and very like engaged in the pro. I don't know. I'm a firm believer in all creative arts sort of around when we least expect them to. And that's always such a nice surprise. You're like, Oh, who knew I could do this? Look at that. Well, that was another thing in those documentaries, like Syl coming out as like an 80 plus year old man and playing those songs and like, I know, band around. (laughs) I know. And I love how they didn't really even know his age. They're like, we're guessing he's in his 80s, but he's so active. It was really inspiring. Yeah. (laughs) Tiffany, what do we have to do to get Don't Knock the Rock back in LA? We need (sighs) this. What, who do we have to call? Watching watching these with you girls, I was like, fuck, we need to do this again. It was so fun. And these films are so important. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I would, I would just love to have it happen again. I I think, um, you know, my, my mom and I have talked about it a bunch and I think we just got to like reconfigure how we do it and, um, where we do it. And, um, I got very inspired going to Memphis at, cause they had, I was invited by Crosstown Arts, which is this incredible building in Memphis that was, um, a Sears building that had been abandoned and uh, they redid it. It's huge. And um, it's an art center. So they have like, (laughs) they have recording studios in there. They have um, a listening lab with John King from who started Ardent Records there, his whole record collection, which is insane. So you can just go in there, ask for a record to listen to, or have them recommend something that you were like, I like this Al Green record. What else is like that from, and they'll they'll give you records and you can sit down and put headphones on 
and like look at one of the many books that they have on music around the the lounge. I mean, oh, the best. And um, and they have a theater, a movie theater that is also a venue that they completely built for this purpose, where the the seats. If you want it to be a live show, because this was always a problem with Don't Knock the Rock, is we'd mm-hmm. have it at like the silent movie theater or at the Red Cat Theater. And those are movie theaters. Those aren't venues. So even yeah. though the Red Cat had a great sound system, you're still up against like theater seats, you know, like this this venue is designed to do both. So they literally their seats fold down underground and create a floor. On oh, the- wow. So you could have a rock band in there like you're at a rock show and you're standing up in front of the stage. Um, yeah. And then they had they have programmed all these great movies. I mean, it was just this incredible space. And, and they also have um, residents. So people live there. The director, Craig Brewer, who did Hustle um, mm-hmm. and Flow, and he yep. lives that building and has an office in that building. He hosted our first night there. And it was just, I was just like, this is, and then they have restaurants down on the ground floor. They have healthcare for musicians. Oh, uh, how YMCA, nice. everything is for artists. And they have all these programs, you know, for artists. And it's, extraordinary. it's the most amazing thing in the world. And then you go, we have all this homeless and all this stuff in in LA and we can't figure this out. Like this is, yeah. <laughs> it's a really nice building and that's what it's for. So I was very inspired being in that theater and in that building. I was like, we have to do Don't Knock the Rock again. And I wish that we had like a venue like that here. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That we don't, but um. But, you know, hopefully we'll get there. And I would love, I would love for Don't Knock the Rock to make a a comeback. (laughs) That would be amazing. I know those were all the movies that we would have had time for tonight. But before um, we let you go, are there any other documentaries you want to recommend people check out, see if they can find them? I know on your Instagram, you were saying that you might make a list or something. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking I I would love to make a list of things that we screened that are now on, on um, streaming, you know, Uh, especially considering how much work these filmmakers have to go through to make Mm -hmm. them and, you know, get the music cleared. And I think a lot of the services too don't do a great job of price. Like I didn't realize the Scott Walker doc and the Booker doc were both on Pluto, but like only because I knew to look for them. So like, I think people would be very happy to know they're out in the world from your list. Yes, I know you guys, I got to do a list. I got to do a list. Um, Well, there's a few things that I've watched in recent times that, uh, that are on Amazon. And again, see, it's like, it's like learning about new music. They were recommended to me by a musician friend of mine. And he was like, Oh, you got to check this out. So one of them actually Stephen Kajak, I, who did uh, 30th century man did this one on Leonard Skinnerd. I was shocked by how great and riveting their story is. 
Because I, I can't say I'm the biggest Leonard Skinner fan, but, uh, but wow, their story was kind of amazing. Cool. Really incredible. So that's a good one. And Steven directed that. Um, and then there's this one called Desolation Center, which I had no, again, I had no idea this existed, but in the 80s, I guess there were these concerts, punk concerts and noise, punk noise concerts that um, were put on in the desert and uh, like pre Coachella, pre anything, no, no, you know, um, no, what licenses, it's not license. Is it a license to permit? Permit, no yeah. permit. <laughs> I'm looking for permit, no permits, no nothing. Word of mouth. There was a bus leaving from LA. <laughs> People would get on these buses, not knowing where the hell they were going. Um, just crazy DIY style shows. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even a few of the artists like Boyd Rice is a is a, a friend of my mom's and he he was out there doing these shows but I didn't know we didn't know about these shows so um and Red Cross a couple of these kind of bands would go out there but it's pretty amazing to see this footage and that's on Amazon too wow so both of those were on Amazon recommended by a friend of mine and um I highly recommend both of those those are the ones that I've seen most recently very cool. Oh, and I saw the Dinosaur Jr. documentary. Um, oh. That's getting a theatrical release May 31st. Oh, very exciting. Nice. That was coming. I didn't know that's either. That's a great one. And um, there's incredible footage in there. And it's a great story, too. And it's funny because a lot of it, even though I have was such a mega fan, yeah, and I feel like I've been through more than half of their career <laughs> with them. Uh, there was stuff I didn't know and footage I had never seen, and it was really amazing to watch it. So I I recommend that one. Ooh, well. looking forward to it. Yeah. Did you have any other questions, Kate? I think that's it. Just thank you, Tiffany. Yes. It's a great conversation. I think it's going to be fascinating for a lot of listeners to learn a lot more about music supervision. And I hope they watch these great docs too, guys. You know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. 
Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.